Well, good morning, family, friends, brothers and sisters, otherwise known as Lindsley Avenue. I want everyone here to know we're so glad you're here, whether you are regular or whether you are visiting. There's one place in town where you really should feel welcome anytime. We want that to be right here. I've said before, the sign on the front door says all are welcome. And I've been many places, and this is one place where I believe that's really, really true. So thank you for being here. We hope you will come back and be with us every opportunity you can. I was thinking as Evan was leading that song, many years ago, that was the song that was sung when I responded to the invitation of God and became a member of his family. So uh, Jesus continues to tenderly call each and every day. Um, I've already been hit uh, once before I even got up here that, oh, another great uplifting topic we're going to discuss again today, Gene, where we're all going to affirm, yes, I'm a failure. Well, I hope that we'll take a look at that and realize that every single one of us really and truly would be able to raise our hand and say, I am a failure, but that it's really not going to matter under a certain circumstance or situation. So watch with me as we look at what the Bible says about failure. Have you ever felt like you're a failure? I really suspect none of us would be able to raise our hand and say, I I've never felt like a failure. I had a hundred on every test I ever took in school. Uh, every time I'm driving somewhere on a lake, I'm late or whatever, the green lights always come up. There's never a crosswalk where I don't just walk across. I've never failed at anything. I don't suspect that's true. Ever been told you are a failure? Well, you're not alone. I really suspect that all of us, everybody here, and even outside of this building, have felt that way and been told that we are a failure. So what does failure sound like in our heads? <laughs> Either by hearing other people or remembering what other people have said. You know, it may sound like you can't do this. Look at how many times you failed. You wanna try that again? I bet you'll succeed as well as you did last time. There's something just flat out wrong with you. Everybody else can do it. You must be the problem. It's not even worth trying again. Why are you going to die? Those are called uplifting statements in the mind of some people, trying to spare us, I suppose, the risk of failing again, but they're not very uplifting at all. Rather than, if you keep trying, you're getting better every time. You can always think of better ways of phrasing this kind of thing. But I want you to remember, no one, no one escapes failure and disappointment. There's always a red light at some point. There's always an alarm clock that doesn't go off. Or there's always something you try and you just don't seem to be able to get it done or to do it right. The Bible has lots and lots of examples of when people fail. It does because it's about people. And it's about the lives of people. And the lives of people in the Bible are just in many ways like our lives. There are people that have successes and people that have failures. Some of the people who fail in the Bible <coughs> do not recover from that failure. I want us to take a look at some of those circumstances and see what we can learn from them. The first one I've titled is simply the failure of a son. 
It occurs in one of the parables that Jesus spoke from Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31. So this is Jesus speaking. Jesus talking to a crowd. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not. I don't know about you. Depending on your age, that's not something you say to dad. I ain't going to do it, right? I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. Son, go today and work in the vineyard. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. So Jesus' question to the crowd is, which of the two did what his father wanted? The answer came, the first, which is correct. The first of the two sons is the only son of these two who did what the father wanted. The second son failed. The first son, you might say, failed at the very first, right, with his words running off of the mouth. That's what my parents used to call it. That happened with me. Right? Running off the mouth. Well, he then changed his mind and went and did what his father asked. Well, the second one gave lip service to it. Sure, you can count on me. And then didn't do what his father asked. So I would argue here the second son is a failure. And this is where the story ends. There's no indication that this second son ever changed his ways or ever, in fact, changed his mind. Second failure, a very prominent one, uh, Judas. Judas. There aren't many children named Judas anymore. There's a reason for that. You know, we don't uh, name our children after giant failures. And Judas is someone who was on the verge of great success, but then turned into a failure and was an ultimate failure. So let's pick up Matthew 26, verses 20 and 21. When it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined with, at the table with the twelve. And reclining, they didn't sit in chairs the way we would. They were kind of laying on their sides, and the table was just raised a little bit. They were eating usually with one hand out of stuff laid on the table. That's why they're reclining. They're not all laying on top of the table, but they're reclining at the table. So Jesus and his twelve apostles, twelve disciples here. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray you. So Jesus is betrayed to the chief priests. He is then accused of having blasphemed. He's taken to Pilate, and this leads to him being crucified, which is all part of God's plan. But it's initiated, if you will, by the actions of one of the twelve that are eating around this table with Jesus right now. Earlier in the chapter, Skipping back about seven verses we read. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So when Jesus makes this statement in verse 20 up here at the top of the slide, the reader, the hearer, who has been going through Matthew chapter 26, knows that Judas has already done this. And so when they're around the table, when they reclined around the table, Jesus says, one of you twelve is going to betray me. The people reading through the chapter know, you're almost wanting to shout out, it's Judas! Because we know what's going to happen. In chapter 27, some, some verses later, we read, 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he betrayed him, he handed him off to the chief priests, they took him into custody, he can see the direction that his actions are going to lead with Jesus, that Jesus is going to be condemned, he changed his mind. Well, that, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to change your mind when you've done something awful or terrible. But what does he do? He changed his mind and walked back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. A true statement. He had in fact sinned by betraying innocent blood. But the chief priests and the elders said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. That's your problem. That's really kind of the response they're giving. That's your problem. You did it. That's your problem. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, Judas apparently is overcome with remorse, with sorrow. He departed. He went out and hung himself. Let me tell you right now, nothing you ever do in your life, nothing you ever encounter in your life is serious or bad enough that you should ever do what Judas did. God gave us this life for good. You may make a big mistake. I've made mistakes, big mistakes before. Don't ever become a Judas. If you're ever tempted for that, call me. I don't care what time of the day or night it is. Don't be a Judas. Judas is an ultimate failure. By killing himself, he has no further opportunities to make it right and correct his mistake. Don't be a Judas. The third failure, that's kind of an ultimate failure, is a less well-known name. His name is Demas. It seems it's probably a contraction of Demetrius. That sounds more like a Greek name, but Demas. He shows up in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. This is later in the life of the Apostle Paul. And he writes in Colossians that Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, the church at Colossae, book in the New Testament here, Colossians, as does Demas. So Paul and Luke and Demas, at least these three, are together. And as Paul is having this letter written to the church of Colossae, Luke says, tell them I said hey. In first century language, of course. Tell them I said hey. And Demas essentially says the same thing. Send my greetings too. Demas had been a companion of Paul. In Philemon, when Paul writes to an individual who lived near Colossae, I have always suspected he's about four miles away over in the town of Laodicea. Paul writes that Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul may very well, in fact, possibly be a prisoner. He may be in chains. He may be on his way or about to see Caesar. But he's got some people with him. But how do they describe these people? You see the phrase up here? My fellow workers. Who's in that list of fellow workers with Paul? Demas. What a great way to have your name remembered through the ages. Even if that's the only word, the only time Demas' name showed up. My name's not in here anywhere. Thurl's is not in here. We all remember Thurl's name. <laughs> I mean, it's a very remember, memorable name, right? But even if this had been the only place Demas' name showed up, he would have been remembered as a fellow worker of Paul with great praise. 
for somebody's name throughout all this. However, that's not the last we hear of this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, often 2 Timothy is often about to be the last book Paul wrote. He said, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas apparently had, had enough of this life hanging around the prisons or missed his former life of living more like a pagan, loving the present world and all the joys and fun that the present world may offer, left and deserted Paul. He had been a fellow worker with Paul. He had said, seemingly, I can't take this anymore or I don't want to take this anymore. I'm out of here. Demas did not recover. There's no statement in the Bible that he ever came back. For a horrible end to the story of Demas, who might have gone down as a, a great memory of an individual without knowing a lot about him, as a fellow worker of Paul. What a great way. Put the period right there and stop. But that's not what happened with Demas. So, several examples here, right? People that failed, and then there's no indication they ever recovered. Ultimate fail, perhaps. But the great, great news is that most people who are mentioned in the Bible who failed did, in fact, recover. Let's take a look at some of those examples. The first one's an individual who's often known as John Mark. Sometimes he's referred to simply as John, sometimes Mark. Many times it's put together. John Mark, like Billy Bob in the first century term. John Mark. He shows up here in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark. And they're coming from Jerusalem, and they're going back to Antioch, a city where there was a large gathering of Christians a good bit north of Jerusalem, uh, and that's where they had come back to from Jerusalem. John Mark is with them. Some days later, in Acts 13, we read, so they, Paul and Barnabas, have left on what's called many times the first missionary journey. They leave from Antioch of Syria, and they go across on a boat to the island of Cyprus. If you were to look at a map of the Mediterranean, you would spot it kind of up in the top right corner of the Mediterranean Sea. So they, Paul and Barnabas, went down to Seleucia, that's the seaport for Antioch, and they sailed from there across to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, a city on the island of Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues, and they had John to assist them. This is John Mark. John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on this first great effort to go where the gospel seemingly had not gone before. The first missionary journey is often called. What a great way to be remembered. I was with Paul and Barnabas. He went with them on this missionary journey. A few verses later, however, now Paul and his companions set sail. They leave Cyprus and go on with the missionary journey. What do you read in the rest of that verse? And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark quit going with them on this missionary journey. In many ways, that's often viewed as a fail, although we don't know why he left. Was he he was a younger man, which he may have been. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he, did, he didn't like some part. I don't know. I don't know, but he left. 
Okay? He left Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas continued on. A couple of chapters later in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas want to go and revisit those churches that they had seen on that great first missionary journey. Pick up with me here in chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Apparently it was so sharp, they went their separate ways. This is Paul and Barnabas here. These are two people that had been, you know, stuck together almost like glue. Barnabas is the one that brought Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem after Paul first became a Christian and said he's been preaching about Jesus. Barnabas, in effect, vouched for Paul. And they had been, Paul and Barnabas, it's a phrase that just shows up in the Bible. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. John Mark apparently was somebody special to Barnabas. Some people think he may have been a nephew or related to Barnabas. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him. Let's give the boy a chance. <laughs> right? Paul's like, no, I don't want anybody with me who took off. And they get into such an argument. So, you know, it's best if we just quit talking about this. You go your way and I'll go mine. But John Mark goes with Barnabas. Now, what's the result of, of that? There are two people, two groups of people going on a missionary journey. Barnabas went one direction. And Paul and Silas, he took Silas with him, went on another. Sometimes even arguments turn out to be for the best. Now, is this all we know about John Mark? Paul's like, I am not taking John Mark with me. You can take him if you want, but he's not coming with me. Is that the last thing we know about John Mark? No, it's not. Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Again, 2 Timothy thought to be pretty much the last book that Paul wrote. Look what Paul says for the very end. He says, Luke alone is with me. Writing to Timothy. Luke's the only one with me. And he asked Timothy, he says, Get Mark and bring him with you when you come to see me. For he is very useful to me for ministry. John Mark, that's what this is, turned around the impression that Paul had of him. So much, it seems, in later years, that when Paul's in prison, getting toward the end of his life, he writes to Timothy and says, Luke's the only one here, but when you come, bring some things with you. Oh, by the way, bring Mark. I might have split because of him, from Barnabas, because of John Mark. But I'll tell you what, bring him with you because he's very useful. That is someone, if you want to say he was a failure when he left them on that first missionary journey, maybe, kind of, perhaps, right? But there's a recovery. The important part is not the failure, it's the recovery. Judas failed, no recovery. The son of the parable failed, no recovery. Right? Demas failed, no mention of a recovery. It's always the recovery that's the important part. 
Every one of us can say, I'm a failure. The question is, then what? Then what? So take another look with me at another big-time failure in the New Testament. And that's going to be Peter. Of all people, that's going to be Peter. In Matthew 4, 18-19, while walking by the sea, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He, Jesus, said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus calls Peter and Andrew to follow him. Peter is recruited specifically by Jesus. In Matthew 16, 15 and 16, after Jesus is asked, who are people saying that I am? And he gets a lot of different answers. And he asks his disciples, well, who do you say I am? Peter steps forward with this. He, he, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He comes out with one of the high points in all of the New Testament. Seeing the truth that others had not really quite seen yet. Peter, an apostle recruited by Jesus, high point here, making the statement that you are the Christ. Yet, after so many high points in his life, walking on the water and all this kind of thing, right? Yet, what happens with Peter? In that chapter 26, after Judas has betrayed Peter, uh, as Judas has betrayed Jesus, we read this later on in Matthew chapter 26, verse 69 and then 74 through 75. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Jesus is inside undergoing an examination. A servant girl came up to Peter and said, You were also with Jesus the Galilean. Then he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this guy. Immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, where Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. Jesus had said, You're going to deny me three times. Peter had said, I'll go with you, even if it means dying with you. He said, Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three separate times. Boom. It happened. This is Peter that Jesus had recruited. This is Peter who had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, failed. Failed right here, denying Jesus in front of other people. In so many ways, you might have thought Peter is also headed for the same kind of end that Judas ended up fighting, right? What might have destroyed someone and has destroyed some people who have denied Jesus does not destroy Peter. A couple of chapters later, a couple of weeks later, Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost, roughly 50 days after the death of Jesus. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of godless men, God raised him up. On that day when the gospel is presented for the first time, 
We have the words of Peter as the first recorded, if you will, gospel sermon. Speaking and preaching the words that Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, had been raised from the dead. Failure did not, and to this day, does not define Peter the way it does Demas, the way it does Judas, because Peter recovers. He does not give up. What do I want you to take from this this morning? God is not done with us yet. I don't care what you did yesterday. Listen to me closely. God doesn't care what you did yesterday. I don't care. God doesn't care what kind of failure it might have been yesterday, last week. What God cares about is what you do with that situation right now. Doug and I were talking back in the classroom. So many of us live with a consumed focus on the past failures, on the past problems. Or we're so worried about tomorrow that we forget to focus on the important moment that we can influence and change, which is right now. I, can I do anything really? I, maybe I can plan ahead a little bit, but can I really change what somebody else may do tomorrow? I don't think so. I know I can't change yesterday, but you and I can change right now. Right now. If I had had a big argument, girls on the front row, again, my wife would fuss at me for picking on the girl. But if we had had an argument this morning, can I change the fact that we had an argument? No. But I could change right now by looking at the brother whom I love and say, I am so sorry. Fix it. Because I've got right now, and right now is the only time you ever have in your lifetime, that moment of now, to change something. Quit looking in the rearview mirror at yesterday. Be focused on where you are right now and where you intend to go. God is not done with us yet. Failures are not meant to define us. We're all imperfect. This is a world full of sin. Yet our very own epic fails, right? That's the term I keep hearing sometimes. Well, that was an epic fail. <laughs> Serve to teach us if we're willing to learn. You can move forward through self-acceptance, realizing that we are, in fact, imperfect, that we, are, we do, in fact, fail. Self-forgiveness, that's a hard part. We want God to forgive us, but we seem totally reluctant or unable to forgive ourselves. I'm, I'm a failure in so many ways at times in my life. None of that changes where I am I've got a failure that I can fix right now. I need to do something about it. The great, wonderful news is that God's grace and forgiveness are for everyone. No matter what you or I may have done in our past. You can't change the past, but you can certainly change right now if you come back to Him. On the handout are also some verses where Jesus made statements of what is involved in coming back to God. We have to understand that we are sinners, that God sent his son to die so that we would have the opportunity to live. 
I need to change my life. I need to quit focusing on the past and focus on changing myself for the better to become more God-like today and tomorrow than I was yesterday. I need to understand that Jesus died and believe who he is, change my life, and then die to myself in the waters of baptism. We talk about that every week. Reenact, as it were, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the same way, dying to my old way of living and allowing God to forgive me of anything I have ever, ever done. And to be raised to walk as a brand new person. God is not done with you. God is not done with me yet. If there's a change that you can make in your life, that you need to make in your life today, do it right now. As together we say it.